Hey everyone, welcome to the Burn Culture Podcast. We are honored that you're tuning in to this week's message, and we pray that you would encounter the presence of God in a fresh way through this word. Let's jump in. All right, how is everybody? Happy 2023, Burn Culture, and everyone who's here that's a part of that. Dex, whenever you're ready, bro, you can. <laughs> I'm not going to try to wear you out. I'll bring you back at the end. <laughs> it's a joy to be with everybody. We're really honored uh, to be able to be here and to participate and to contribute. I um, had the amazing privilege of being able to see Stanton and Abby and uh, little baby girl, um, we are heading back to Orlando after the gathering tonight. Uh, as it was said, we have five kids, four of them who are in school and are going to be up at 6 a.m. tomorrow and getting lunches together and getting dressed for class tomorrow. Uh, we have a seventh grader, a fifth grader, a third grader, and then one in pre-K three. And then we got a little 21-month-old that's running around also. So we have five, 13, 10, 7, 3, and 1. Some of you have horrid look on your faces. <laughs> um, I know some folks that have a lot of kids and they're holding on for dear life. We don't feel that way. Um, I don't say that because I feel like we're Superman and Superwoman. Uh, life is amazing, and we've recognized one of the privileges of marriage is to be able to birth little image bearers and to evangelize them and disciple them and to raise them in an intimate knowledge and fellowship with God himself and his purposes for their lives and to be able to release these little lovers and laborers into their generation to serve God and to multiply his work throughout the nations of the earth. Um, so we count that to be a great joy uh, and actually see that as one of the greatest responsibilities of marriage. Uh, what I mean by that is my kids are not an inconvenience to the call of God that's on my life. They are not in some way a burden and resisting me from being able to fulfill the things that God has said to me. Um, they're not getting in the way. There's not more that I would be able to do if, if I didn't have five kids that I had to tend to because then I could do other things that, you know, the world seems to applaud. Um, you know, I, I get it. The world exalts its superstars, and rarely is it a faithful father. Rarely is it a man who's been committed to his wife. Uh, rarely is it someone who keeps their word. I, I, I'm a Psalm 15:4 guy. Keep your word even if it pains you. Uh, another translation would say, even if it kills you, be faithful to the things that you have said. Um, you know, so I get it. The world exalts their superstars, um, but we see a different calling in the scriptures. And we recognize a particular mission that God has apprehended our lives for by inviting us in through the announcement of the gospel and transforming us. And we are really grateful to have been able to just be here and get to spend time with uh, people that we consider to be family to us over these last days. Um, I told Stanton, I'm not coming to preach this weekend, bro. Uh, and he was like, if you're in my state, 
you've got to stay over. I said, man, I would be willing to do that. Um, I love you guys, and it would be a joy to gather with you guys on Sunday afternoon. And so we're here, and I say we because we brought the whole crew, and, and Anna's here, and, and our five kids are with us, and it's really just a privilege for us to be able to be here and to contribute. Um, so I want to do that, and I take it serious. Um, I hope you brought a Bible, because we're going to jump right in. I feel like I have a lot that is in my heart to try and unpack. I've been asking the Lord to give me grace to streamline it in a way that would be simple. Um, and so we're going to try to do that. But if you have a Bible, it is going to be important. I hope you are in love with the Word of God. Um, and the reason that I say that is because it's important for us to know, right? Those of us who, man, we want to go for it. And what I mean by that is we want to gather and, you know, at times we set our hearts on, Man, just having a barn burner, right? Like we want God to show up. Man, we want him to torch the place. We want people to just get encountered. And man, for the spirit to move and to exalt Jesus in our midst and all the variety of the, the ways that that can be demonstrated or expressed. or you know, you know, we want the gifts and we want supernatural moves and power and demonstration. I get all that. I, I get all that. We, we want it all. I've encountered the Lord in a variety of ways over two plus decades now that has absolutely transformed my life, created an urgency and a jealousy in me to want to see the fullness of God. We want that. But, but I think at times the, the challenge can be that we fall more in love with the charismatic demonstration and expression and we tend to, if we're not careful, begin to minimize or trivialize the word to where the Spirit's moving becomes what we consider to be the ultimate experience in a time together. Um, and the reason that I say that is because we have to have a deep love for the word. Because the word and the Spirit are not competing for who's going to have the better gathering. Right? The Word and the Spirit are not somehow rivals trying to figure out who's going to win whenever we come and gather. Uh, I, I'm sure you've heard it said before. Possibly you've said it yourself. And I, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing and it's not necessarily commenting to critique. But what I am saying is that we have to consider the types of statements that we make and the mindset that we frame over time if we're not careful. We've all heard it said, man, the gathering was so amazing or serving, service was so awesome. Man, pastor didn't even get to preach. The spirit was just moving all over the place. What are we actually saying? Right? Are we saying that the Spirit's move is more ultimate than the consideration of the Word? Right? We all recognize that it's the Word, in some ways, that is the jealousy that is conforming us to the image of the Son. Right? Because if the Word that was in the beginning, that was with God, that was God, is that Word, that John 1 Logos, that John is very intentionally communicating to a Jewish audience that would have traveled over now thousands of years with the recognition of the word of the Lord coming to people all throughout the Old Testament experience. And John is intentionally communicating that it is that same word that is now embodied and tabernacling. The reference to Moses and the tabernacle and the glory of God. It's that same word that is now embodied in a man. Well, if we aren't aware, then we will miss the jealousy that without the word, we actually don't have a shot to be conformed to the image of Jesus. 
Now, you can encounter Jesus through a variety of um, expressions or demonstrations or encounters or experiences, and all of those things are lovely. They're all necessary. We want it all. Again, we're not saying one or the other. It's an and both, right? It's not either or. It's an and both. But if we're not careful, we lose the jealousy for the consistency of exposure to the word and teaching the scriptures in a deep and dynamic way that is going to bring us under the harness or the yoke of Jesus, right? Come to me, all of you that are done trying to do life your own way, come to me, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, I'll give you rest. Rest is in me. It's not in a strategy. It's not in an experience. It's not in any of these things. I alone am rest, and so I issue rest. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Well, in ancient terms, that's a rabbi's teaching. It's, it's, a com- it's a set of commands. It's a way of life. And this is what he's saying. Take my yoke upon you. Come under my yoke. Learn from me. Spend time with me. And through obeying my commands, you will become more like me. That's the goal. Right? We understand through the eternal purpose That the Father is looking for a transformed people that in the ages to come, he will be glorified in through ruling alongside his son. There will be a people that are a comparable companion, meaning they are comparable in the actual content. Through being transformed, they will be made to be like the man Jesus, and they will be responsible for creation and ruling in the ages to come because their responsibility will be based off of their transformation. Right? The father longs for his son to rule all things. We get that. Right? Psalm 110, rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 2, while the nations rage... We understand that there is one who is enthroned, he is seated, he is at rest. We know that the kings of the nations, they make all their plans in vain, and the one who reigns, he laughs. Because he is resisting the return of his son, because he's gracious, he's kind, and there's something that he wants, as 2 Peter 3 would tell us. Beloved, God is not distant, and he's not disinterested. For a day is like a thousand years before the Lord. He's patient. There's something that he wants. He's after something. And his longing is that all men would come unto repentance. Because it is through the presentation or the announcement of this great gospel message that gives the human experience the privilege to actually repent, which through repentance changes the category of their existence. Um, I, I would suggest it this way. There's no other religious conversation that changes the category of the human experience. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you're either dead in your transgressions or alive to God. There's one or the other. You're either outside of Christ or in Christ. Those are the two great considerations. Million ways to die, two ways to be raised. You will come alive from the dead in Christ or outside. And at the end of the age, there will be the consideration of the greatest demonstration of love that has ever been seen, and that is the judgments of the Lord. And so our consideration has to be a jealousy for the word. We need constant exposure 
to the scriptures in order to continue to bring us under the yoke of Jesus and conform us to his image. Why? Because without exposure to the word, we have no shot at actually being conformed to the image of the one who is the word. He is the word. And if we want to look like the one who is the word, we need exposure to the word. And Jesus said it himself in John 8. I know the ones that are actually mine. He said, if you listen to my voice and obey my commands, then I know that you actually belong to me and you're my disciples. But we're more familiar with the verses that follow because he says, and in that, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he who the son sets free is free indeed. But the idea of being free indeed is through a constant exposure to the things that are true, which would be his teaching and his commandments, which reveals that our lives are actually under discipline, meaning I'm not trying to do my own thing, but I'm disciplining my life to follow after him his way, not my own way, but his way, which is a particular set of instructions or commandments, and his teaching continues to give me exposure to the things that he wants, which inevitably, as a consequence, as I live his teachings, is going to conform me to his image. Because what he's after is multiplying himself in those that say they belong to him. Because the Father longs to hand over creation to a people that are going to be responsible And that responsibility, he believes, is in the character of his son that he loves and honors. And so our our consideration for this afternoon, um, actually none of that was on my radar. It was all just a swirl for my introduction for you. I'm just kidding. Um, But if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to grab four places. Um, Grab Genesis chapter 2 for me. Grab Exodus 19 and 20. If you have it in pages, that's great. Um, You you can just kind of hold both pages, maybe with a finger or a bookmark. Genesis 2, Exodus 19 and 20. Um, We'll grab Acts 1 and 2, more so Acts 2. Uh, And then we'll look at Revelation 21 as well. And our consideration for the next few moments uh, is going to be A place that God abides. A place that God abides. Um, When you search through the scriptures, you become familiarized or acquainted with the idea that God is on a mission. There is something that God is after. There is something that moves him. Another way to say it would be there's something that he wants and he is working all things together for good to those that love him, that are called by his name according to his purpose. He is working all things, all things. In our individual lives, that would look like our ups and downs, our celebrations, our sorrows, our wins, our losses. God is working everything together towards what it is that he has said is good, which is what Paul would call, at least in that verse in Romans 8, God's purpose. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul in this consideration would call it an eternal 
purpose that God has. And when you search through the scriptures, you recognize that God has a jealousy. There is something that he wants. And everything that is happening along the timeline of history, God is consequentially working all things together in order to bring about the result or the outcome that he has determined he already is after. And this is what the whole story of the scriptures actually communicates. And it's one of the reasons we have to, uh, in some ways, break the cycle of Western contemporary devotional handling of the scriptures. And what I mean by devotional handling of the scriptures, I mean something that's more relevant to our individual desires. Something that's more contemporary in nature through the conditioning of the Western entertainment-driven celebrity model event-oriented Christianity. Where it's all about the person that's attending. Where church has become an event and we are doing whatever we can do to cater to a crowd that we are trying to consistently grab their attention and hope to God over time that some of them will begin giving. And if some of them even start serving in particular departments, baby, we've got something. We've got to break free of this Western entertainment, it's all about you model of Christianity where we are searching the scriptures more so trying to find a verse that is going to authorize the life that I want to live rather than exposure to the teaching of the scriptures that is going to jar me with the information of what it is that God wants and how my life can be altered in every possible way in order to align myself more fully with him and the things that he said he is after. It's amazing to me that the gospel begins with God because that's good news. It would not be good news if it started with you. But in our culture, in all of our relevance to what we want, well, it's all about me. Well, we live in a moment where you can have everything. You can have your own truth if you want. Well, it's my truth and not your truth. There's one truth, it's absolute, and it governs our lives as believers in Jesus. You don't have your own truth. There is one truth, there is one plumb line, there is one standard. There is one set of instructions. We love it all. We have a jealousy for the fullness of his commandments, and we want our lives to be reoriented in every possible way to what it is that we know God wants. Well, if we don't have constant exposure to the word, then we very easily slip into this modern um, version or way to kind of just survey the scriptures, always cherry-picking little verses to try and authorize my desires, my dreams, the things that I want. Well, I need a Bible verse so that I can feel good about this pursuit, about this ambition. No, no, no. I want to know what God wants. Right, Because I'm not trying to incorporate him into my life. He has allowed me to be a part of his. He's let me into his story. And if there's something he's after and I've been integrated into his story, then it is going to be paramount that I know what it is that God wants so that I can want it too. And as we survey the scriptures, this is what we find. I ask you to hold four places. The four places in the scriptures that we grabbed are the four places throughout the scriptures where God comes down. Whether you were thinking about it that way or not, when I asked you to grab those places, 
These are the four places in the scriptures where God comes down. What do I mean by that? I mean where God is tangibly present in the midst of his people. Where God is on the earth. He is in the midst of them. He has found his place of abiding and in some ways, in an immediate way, as some of the places we'll look at, he is dwelling among his people. This is God's jealousy, to have a people for himself that he can share himself with forever and ever and ever. God longs to have a transformed people that will be all his, that he can possess, that he can enjoy forever. Maybe that's a news flash for you, but God enjoys you. We just came through the incarnation season. God enjoys you, right? That was the announcement that the angels brought in Luke chapter 2. The first thing they said was, don't be afraid. God's not mad. He's very pleased. And I've come to bring you great news. God is coming incredibly near. This is what he wants. This is what Isaiah prophesies. God is about to do something extraordinary. Right in Isaiah 6, he's about to do something extraordinary. There's going to be a virgin who's going to be with child. It'll be a little boy and his name will be Emmanuel. God is with us. Well, we know Emmanuel in a moment, yes, but the ultimate Emmanuel is prophesied in Isaiah 9. A child has been born and a son has been given. And the government of God will be upon his life. And he will be called wonderful. But God's desire throughout has always been to dwell in the midst of a people. I want to be with them. I long to dwell amongst them. There's something about these creatures that God absolutely is thrilled about. And by creatures, I mean humans. Our consideration of broken, weak, insecure, fragile, at times rebellious, hostile creatures, God is absolutely thrilled about people. So much so that it moved him to create a context where he could be in the midst of them and out of creating them, he could dwell and enjoy these people forever. That was his goal. This fellowship is so awesome, let's create people that we can share it with forever and ever and ever. This is the eternal purpose. I want these creatures that I can be among them to enjoy them and let them enjoy us. And by us, I mean this Trinitarian fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are so amazing and what we enjoy together is so thrilling and exhilarating that we desire to make a people that we can bring into this. Right, at least that's what Jesus prayed in John 17. Right, he said, Father, you're in me and I'm in you, but I'm in them and they have been brought into us. That's the fellowship. We've been invited in to fellowship with God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is glorious. And there are ecstasies and thrills and joy forevermore. 
And this is God's plan. I want to make a people that I can dwell in the midst of them, where I can enjoy them and they can enjoy me. And throughout the whole creation, they will be mine. And they will represent me as they steward or rule throughout all of creation alongside of my son. Well, that sounds amazing. And there's a consistency that reveals what it is that God is after. And it's important that we understand God's jealousy so that we don't lose our bearings as we continue to journey as if to assume that because of contemporary culture, God has somehow abandoned his plan or his purpose. What God wanted in the beginning, he absolutely wants it. What he wants from the beginning is revealed in the end and he is absolutely going to get it. And all throughout, we get these glimpses that God has not forgotten. In Genesis, we find that God goes to incredible lengths to create a context for these creatures because context is very important. God is not random, but in fact, God is very particular. He is incredibly particular. It's line upon line, precept upon precept. And we find in the very beginning that God goes to incredible lengths in order to create a context for these creatures that he is going to walk with and share himself with. I want to do life with them. And so I'm going to create an environment or a habitat that is conducive to me being able to walk with them, to me being able to enjoy them. And what we find even in the very beginning is that God didn't make man for man's own dreams or enjoyment. From the very, in, like the very, not the invitation, but the, the very introduction of man into the story, we find that God is immediately revealing purpose and boundaries because the two go together. The two absolutely go together. It's the idea of covenant. Covenant carries purpose, but it absolutely carries boundaries. When I said yes to my wife that day almost 16 years ago now, what I recognized is that when I said yes to her, I also said no to every other woman that would ever be alive. That was implied in my covenant. So covenant includes purpose for sure, but it also implies boundaries. And from the very introduction of man into the story, we are finding that God has created an environment in order for him to fellowship with these creatures that he so longs to do life with. Because God wants to do life with you. God wants to do life with you. And God creates a habitat that is conducive to him doing life with them. And it came with a particular set of instructions. We have what we know at the end of uh, Genesis chapter 1 as the dominion mandate, where God shares with them his purpose or desire for them to fellowship with him and to extend his rule to the furthest corners of creation. We're going to extend the boundaries of what we enjoy together in what's known as the garden. We're going to take the experience of the garden and then overlay it over the entirety of the creation as we are going to journey together. We're going to do life together. 
And in our doing life together, we're going to take what we have together in Eden and extend it to the furthest corners of the creation. We find that at the end of Genesis 1. Well, then we also know that in Genesis chapter 2, there were a particular set of instructions where God was revealing to them particular permissions, if we could call them. These are the things in the habitat that you are permitted to do. Cultivate this environment. There's responsibility. You're not just here to do your own thing. I'm revealing to you the thing that I am putting you in this particular place to do. Yes, there's intimacy. Yes, there's fellowship. Yes, God is in the midst. He's walking in the cool of the day. But that's not to assume that it was just a free-for-all. Because covenant, again, is not a free-for-all. Covenant is not a free-for-all. And God revealed to them a particular set of permissions. You can eat from any tree in here that you want. But don't touch that one. And don't touch that one. There was legislation of God's desires. He's Lord or he's nothing at all. He's not just a buddy. He's not just a healer. He's not just a bill payer. He's Lord. I get it, he's lamb, but he's returning as lion. He came the first time to bear sin. He is not coming at the end of the age to bear sin. He's coming to deal with all of the rebellion in the heart of man that continually leans them towards an influence to derail them from his desires. And I get it, he's incredibly kind, but he is the most just and righteous man that the universe has ever known. And the fire in his eyes are pure and tender, but he is absolutely serious about what he's after. And there were a particular set of permissions in the beginning that kind of regulated God's abiding. And what we find even in the very beginning is that when they transgressed these expectations, God had to remove them from the habitat or the environment that was going to be most conducive to him being able to share life with them the way that he wanted to. But you immediately find the redemptive plan in action because God is not going to seemingly give up on what it is that he wants. And it's easy if we lose sight of what it is that God is after through all of the variety of personalities and stories and epic things that happen as we continue to traverse the Old Testament. It's easy to lose sight of what it is that God is after. But we get these beautiful glimpses again. And Exodus 19 is another moment where we catch a glimpse. You're familiar with the story. It's now two months and some days since God has delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. He's brought them out. Almost 400 years of slavery. And God speaks to a man on the backside of nowhere who has, in some ways, failed his attempt to fulfill God's calling on his life because he went after it his own way and didn't realize that God had a way that things needed to be walked out. Um, right, right. This situation with Moses is not just some type of like irrelevant thing. Like Moses kills a guy and buries him and tries to keep doing life as if nothing ever happened. Like this is serious business. And it's 40 years later and God comes and finds him. And God says to him, I'm going to raise you up 
and I'm going to send you to the most powerful man on the face of the earth. I get it, Pharaoh rules an earthly throne, but I rule the throne that actually matters. And I am the one that is exalted even above powers and rulers, and I am going to put on a display of power unlike anything you've ever seen. This is no boxing match where you've got two great fighters and we're just going to hope to God that like God can somehow edge him out in the end. This is going to be epic. I am going to exalt my own name above the idols and the gods of Egypt. And as a matter of fact, in every instance of the plagues, you find an exaltation of Yahweh against one of the gods or the idols that Egypt worshipped. It's particular in every single space and place. And God says, I know that 400 years has affected the way that you think about me. In another way to put it, you've been in your situation or condition for so long that it's altered the way that you think about me. But that's okay. I'm going to do something that's going to elevate your view of who I am. I'm going to break into your circumstance with power. I know that you think that I've forgotten about you, but I remember my covenant to my people. And the cries of the children of Israel have come up to me. And Moses, I'm sending you as a deliverer. And I'm about to do something, and it is going to be extraordinary. And he does exactly that. And he delivers them. There is signs. There's wonders. There's miracles. There's power. God does things that are absolutely majestic. Nobody but God. And through a deliverance experience, which even included the price of Passover which was the firstborn throughout the kingdom of Egypt. You remember they put the blood of the the lamb on their doorpost, and when the angel of death came through, he would pass over all of those where the blood was visible, but there was a wiping out because there was a price or there was a sacrifice, there was a life that was required in order for the deliverance of the people that God desired. And with the firstborn all throughout the kingdom of Egypt, they rise to the occasion and they come out with great unction as God delivers them. And it's two months later. And God tells Moses, bring the people to the mount because I'm going to reveal to them what all of this is about. And it's important that we see Exodus 19 as another moment where God is reminding them of the garden desire. Because in Exodus 19, God comes down. Now I know that in certain cases, this doesn't get appreciated the way that it should. But I would suggest that Exodus 19 is one of the most amazing episodes the Bible gives, period. God comes down. And an entire nation of people sees God visibly, tangibly, gloriously on the top of a mountain. And there is thunder, there is wind, there is fire, there is lightning, there is the cloud of glory, there is the trembling and the shaking, and the voice of God thunders in the earth. God has come out of an unseen realm and experience and has made himself tangibly present, uniquely present amongst a people that he desires to make his own. This is wild. Yo, wild. God 
is standing on the top of a mountain and an entire nation of people get to gaze upon the Lord. And God says, this is what I want you to tell them, Moses. I want you to tell them that what I did for them, I didn't do it just for them. That I saved them because there's something that I want. This is Exodus 19, 1 through 6. I delivered them because there's something that I'm after. I rescued them from slavery with power and signs, not so that they could now do their own thing. Right? I get it at times in our candy-coated, patty-cake, patty-cake, Jesus man, and the gospel that's centered on your desires more than God's desires, we at times are begging people to come to Jesus and incentivizing them with everything that we know they want, promising them that God is going to increase them, bless them, and all he wants to do is thrill them and thrill them and fulfill all of their material worldly desires. Well, God says, let's just cut straight to it. I didn't do it just for you. They're two months into this thing. God says, bring them to the mount. I'm about to reveal to them what it's all about. I didn't just do it for you. But Mike, Luke 19 says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that one which was lost. I get all of that. But even your individual salvation fits into a much bigger story. Individual salvation is not the fullness of the gospel announcement. And that would be somewhat of a rabbit trail, so we're not going to get into that. Uh, but I would ask you to consider for yourself, could you answer the question, what is the gospel, if I challenged you to believe that it wasn't only about your individual salvation? What would you say the gospel was if you couldn't say God wants to save people? <laughs> because that's not the announcement of the gospel. The announcement of the gospel is not God wants to save you or he's interested in your individual salvation, although he absolutely is. And God reconciling people to himself is a part of this great, masterful, eternal purpose. But the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom is not only that God wants to save people. And so we have to consider for ourselves, can we answer these questions? What is the gospel? What, what is the church? What, what is worship and what purpose does it serve? And on and on it would go. But God reveals to them in Exodus 19, I didn't just do it for you. There's something that I want. And he tells them in Exodus 19, 1 through 6, he says, I want a people that are going to be all mine. I'm looking to possess a people. Our language is one of ownership. We have been bought with a price, not the perishable or corruptible things of this world or the things that the world system values and or appreciates, but with the incorruptible seed of the blood of the lamb and the word of God and his testimony. We have been bought. Bought is the language of possession or ownership. Colossians 1 says we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the domain. Domain is habitat, it's environment. The domain of the kingdom of his son that he loves. And God says, I bought you with a price. You all realize that. You saw what happened in Egypt. 
The requirement was the sacrifice of the life of the firstborn throughout the entire kingdom. Well, we know that as we continue through the story that Jesus is the ultimate pathway to Passover. He is the lion and the lamb. He is the mercy seat and the judgment seat. He is the high priest and the sacrifice. And with the blood of the firstborn, yet again, Jesus makes an eternal way and not just an immediate geographical way. And God says, recognize how much I did in order to bring you out. But this is what I want. I want a people that are going to be mine. I want a people that are going to come under my yoke. Now, we know this because he says, if you will obey my voice. Big two letters there, if. If you will obey my voice and if you will continually abide in my commandments, then you will be mine. If and then. Cause and effect. Consequence. Purpose, but also implied boundaries. If you will obey my voice. And if you will set your life up to abide by my commandments, then you will be my people, my holy possession, what I've always longed for, and I will dwell among you. Well, now we recognize that as we continue, the people were scared to death. They actually didn't want to go up the mountain alongside of Moses. They said, you go up there, find out what it is that God wants, come back down and tell us, we'll do life our way, you can be God's spokesman, and we'll just critique or comment on or consider if we want to agree with the things that God shares. Sounds a lot like our immediate culture. So Moses goes up and comes back down with what we know to be the law. Now, I get it. There's a lot of things that we could talk about when we talk about the law. But let's hear it this way. It's the boundaries of a covenant love. The majority of the law dealt with behaviors that were going to be radically opposite of the regions that surrounded them. And it's important to understand the law through this lens or perspective. When you hear a lot of the law, think about it this way. Hey, listen, guys, those guys over there, they do this. You guys don't do that. Hey, those guys over there, they act this way. Don't do those things. That's how you're going to be mine. Come out from among them and be separate. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Because I'm longing for a people that I can transform through abiding in my love and consistently coming under the yoke of my leadership and teachings that are going to make you something different than the rest of what's populating the nations of the world. And this is how I'm going to do it. And so he reveals to them a particular set of instructions that is intended to do a variety of things. One, which is first and foremost, alter their immediate way of life. You can't assume now that I am among you and I've made you a part of my story and I've gone to great lengths in order to deliver you and to seemingly raise you from the dead. You can't just assume that you can now just do your own thing. I'm better than that. 
And there is a way of life that I am now going to call you to that is going to be the most consistent or conducive environment or habitat for me to dwell in the midst of you the way that I desire. This thing comes with a cost. And one of the considerations is you now belong to me. I am Lord. And my teachings are now a particular set of instructions that are going to govern over your experience and existence so that I can rest among you the way that I desire to and through dwelling among you, continue to transform you and then to fulfill my mission through you to reconcile the hostile peoples of the regions and nations. That was the goal. If you will be mine, I will dwell among you and transform you. I will make you, Exodus 19 is the Old Testament version of Matthew 5. Exodus 19, God is revealing to them, if you obey my voice and come under my commandments and abide in me, I will dwell among you. I will transform you. I will make you to be a people that are different from the nations of the world. You will be a holy possession to me. You will be a city on a hill. You'll be a light tower in a dark night sky. I will use you as a bright light to provoke the hostile regions and peoples so that I can redeem them and continue to add to my family or this people that I want to share myself with forever and ever and ever. And God reveals all of that in Exodus 19 and 20. And then we continue journeying. And we realize that they failed miserably time and time and time again. And that brings us to the New Testament. And once again, we find that God is present. Isaiah prophesies, John gives intimate description in chapter 1 of John's gospel. But we find the man Jesus tabernacling once again amongst the people that he longs to do life with. God has come near. And he's come so near that he has entered into the human story as one of these creatures himself. He has put on flesh and the likeness of man and has become one of us, a human. And Jesus walks among us not to reveal how upset God is, but he comes near to do life with those that he longs to be close to. He shares meals with us. Completely mind-boggling. He embraces us. He hugs them. He walks with them. He cooks for them after being alive from the dead on the side of the beach. He's there frying fish for breakfast. God has come near. In John 11, he weeps. The shortest verse in the whole Bible, I'm sure we're all aware. John eleven thirty five, 35. Jesus wept. But he weeps standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus, not because he's embarrassed because they don't have enough faith to believe. Not because he's put off at how broken their humanity is and what desperate need they're in of someone to deliver them from themselves. He stands outside of the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps 
because he realizes that there's a day coming when death will no longer be seen as a hurdle or as resistance to him being able to do life with the creatures that he so desperately loves and wants to enjoy forever. He stands outside of the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps because, oh, death, where is your sting? As David writes in the Psalms and as Paul echoes in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the glory of our resurrection and our redemption through the transfiguring or transforming of our own bodies. Because it will require a transformed body to be able to stand in the presence of God when he unleashes all of his joy and desire on the human experience to know him and be with him forever. It will take that. But Jesus stands and he weeps because he recognizes that there's still a time where we're going to live in tension. Where things are not as right as God longs for them to be, but yet God is working. Those should be the verses that cause us to shout when we read that Romans 8, 28. For God is working all things together for good. The point is God is working and he hasn't stopped because God is jealous and he's faithful and he's consistent and he's a covenant keeping God and God is working And in John 11, Jesus stands and he weeps because he understands that his father is still working. And that work is one of the reasons that caused him to enter into the human story as a man himself. And he's there to work and to joyfully lay his life down for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. And in John 17, we find him praying about these people that God longs to do life with. As a matter of fact, almost the whole chapter of John 17 is God talking to God about how much they want to do life with us. That's one of the descriptions that you could use for a lens to view John 17. God talking to God about how desperately they long to do life with us. It's the father and the son having a conversation. By the spirit, obviously, because we recognize that they do all things together. But in John 17, 24, Jesus prays and he says, I know what you promised me. You promised me a people. A people that would be like me and a people that would serve alongside of me. An exalted company, alive from the dead, radically transformed in my image to be the bride that I deserve. And I have to have them. John 17, 24 should set our hearts on fire. I have to have them because I want them to be with me where I am. Listen to that. I long for them to be with me where I am so that they can behold me forever and I can reveal my glory to them. I know what you promised me. I know that I'm worth it or I deserve it. There's one man that can live with entitlement and it's Jesus alone because he's worth it. I know what you promised me, and I know what I'm worth, and I have to have it. There's an inheritance that I've been promised. Well, we know that Jesus lays his life down, and Acts 1 tells us that he's alive from the dead. He's 40 days with his disciples, and then he is ascended on high on a cloud when angels are revealed. The angels tell them the same way that you saw him go is the same way that he is going to return. 
We know that they go, they tarry for 10 days, glory comes, wind, fire, cloven tongues of fire, in fact, and the suddenlies of God bring a disruption to their way of life as they knew it. They are cast out in the streets. Peter gets up to preach and he announces the gospel. In response to this announcement, they say, what must we do in Acts 2.37? Because what's implied is that you just can't say what you're saying without me feeling a demand on my life that there is a call that if I respond to it, it is going to require me to make any alteration necessary to in the greatest way possible align my life with the things that you're saying. And they do exactly that. Peter begins with repent. What must we do? He preaches the gospel. They say, what must we do? Peter says, repent. Repent of your own way. Repent of your own wisdom. Give yourself to God. Right? Repentance is not just remorse. Because you can feel bad about the way you're living and not necessarily want to change. Right? Most people, if you would offer them to lay hands on them, and they would actually stop feeling bad about the things that they're doing, some might actually take you up on that, right? If I could keep living the way that I'm living, but no longer feel bad about it or be convicted by it, yeah, I'd be all for that, because I'd rather be happy than holy. (laughs) But Peter says repent, right? Repent, now, speaking primarily to a more Jewish audience, who would have already believed that through their ethnic distinction, they were a called people, meaning that they were the elect of God, that they were the ones who had the patriarchs and the prophets and God's voice traveling in and with the people for thousands of years. They would have already felt like they were being favorited by God, especially when the only other consideration would have been these Gentiles. And Peter says, repent. And in the idea of the way that they would have heard it would have been repent of all of your own hollow religiosity that you know isn't actually working towards the things that God desires. Right? We know one of the considerations of the end of the age is going to be a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. It'll be all of the externals. It'll be all of the imagery. It'll be all of the formalities. It'll be all of these religious ideals and these superimposed filters that we put on our life to make people believe that we are something only on the outside that we are not being transformed and conformed on the inside to. That is the consideration of a form of godliness that denies the power that is at work in those that believe actually producing the outcome or the consequence of that power that God desires, which is a people like his son. I have actually released power into the lives of those that believe to do what it is that I want. And Peter preaches, and he starts with repent. Well, one of our considerations in a modern Western version of Christianity that we would need to consider in the idea of repentance, well, well, I know immediately some of us are put off even by that language because we believe we repented the day that we got saved, and all of that is, it's foolishness. It's nonsense. Repentance is a way of life. 
for those that belong to him. Because repentance implies an invitation away from anything that is compromising his influence in our life. That's the idea of repentance. Anything that is persuading you or influencing you to compromise our alignment, you need to repent of. You need to come away and fully align yourself with me. You need to walk away from other lovers and idols and ideals and whatever it may be. Repent, turn, no longer do that, and come and give yourself to me in a whole or full way again. Well, one of the ways that we should consider repentance in a Western Americanized Christian setup or system would be that God only fits into a particular space on Sundays. The idea that the church is an event and that God is some sort of event host. Where church is an event and it fits into a 90-minute window on Sunday, or if we're really going to go for it, like two and a half, three hours, right? Because, like, we're all in. We're about that life. Like, no, we're going hard. We're going three hours. Even three hours is not enough. Because the idea is that church is not an event. Church is not something that happens, that you need to attend. And this idea that church is some event hosted by a small group of professionals that are going to do something for us whenever we show up, whether paid or unpaid, because we've got bivocational leaders also, that the idea of a small company of people that are going to be God's representatives that are going to put on some sort of event for us so that we can all rally together and enjoy church as it happens is actually foreign to the idea of what the scriptures communicate. Because church is not an event. Church is a people that have been possessed by God. Church is a family of transformed new creatures. Paul said, if any man be in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, that man that is in Christ is now a new creature. The idea is there has been a dynamic disruption to our life, period. Before God intervened, I was this way, headed that direction. Now that God has intervened, I am now, what Paul suggests, is a new creation. And as a new creature, I now identify with God and what it is that he has done in my life. Paul would say it that way in Philippians 3. All of what I used to do to cater to the desires of the world system, all the resume building, all of the favor stuff, and all the name this, and all the self-exaltation, and all of the appraisals through achievements or acquisitions or what have you, all of that is now trash. Burn it all. It is garbage. It is rubbish. Another translation says that it's actually dung. He says, because God has apprehended me. And he's done something to issue power into my life to make me what I could never have made myself. God has released power and grace in order to transform the human creation and experience. And it is wild in every possible way. And that's why if any man, any man, 
Old man, young man, rich man, poor man, unknown man, known man. It it makes no difference. Black man, white man, yellow man, purple man. If any man be in Christ, that man that actually gets acquainted or exposure or connects with that power and grace, that man that is in Christ, God is going to transform and make him a new creature. Well, the idea is the church is a family of new creatures that are living in covenant loyalty to God and one another. That's the idea. It is the fundamental definition or distinction for the church. It's not an event. And so some of our consideration has to be our preference with God only fitting into a particular time slot on Sunday and how I enjoy that because, hey, bro, listen, man, like I already give you Sunday. Like, what else do you want? Like, get off my back, man. Like, I'm trying to live my life. I'm trying to do my thing. I'm, no, no, we're not trying to do our own thing. There is no thing that I'm trying to do outside of the thing that God has invited me into. And that's the idea, is my life no longer belongs to me, and there has been a divine disruption where he is now Lord, and he now has the ultimate say-so for leadership and legislation on to now what's okay and what's not. That's what we find in Exodus 19. It's what we find in Genesis 2. But we find it yet again in Acts 2. And they say, what must we do? And Peter starts with repent. Right? We need to repent of the idea that we're just trying to add God into our life. I would suggest to you, you are not trying to add God into your life. You are not trying to sprinkle a little bit of God on your agenda. You're not trying to somehow find a way for God to just be most interested in your own desires, world pursuits, and fleshly dreams and ambitions. But God has done something, and it is wild. And we now, who were once not a people, are now a people. And we're not just any kind of people. We're not just still worldly, meaning just like them, but now we do it and attend church meetings. The idea revealed in Exodus 19 is I need to transform you so that you're no longer like the rest of those guys. Well, this is the idea because in Exodus 19, it was all external. Well, now God has actually gotten in our guts. Now God has actually set up shop on the inside. Now God is actually residing or abiding on the inside and he has given grace and power to actually make us like him and to not just try to obey him through some legalistic formality driven whatever system or model that you would like to propose. And he says reason being is because I need a people that are going to be different So I've got to give you a different appetite than the rest of those guys so that you're not continually lured away to chase the things that those guys want or want to do. And this is the idea, right? A a quick 30-second journey of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus is alive from the dead and exalted above powers. 
Ephesians chapter 2, there is a people that are alive from the dead also, no longer bound by the influence of powers and principalities. They have been exalted alongside of the exalted man Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, the church now bears the responsibility to embody that reality and to make it manifest or demonstrate it to the nations of the world because it prophesies to powers and principalities. Or another translation would say the reality of the manifold wisdom of God in the church gives instruction to powers. What does the church instruct powers? It instructs them that what God has done to break your influence off of our lives and to ready the inheritance that he promised for his son, no devil in hell can disrupt, no power, no principality, no influence of darkness or wicked agenda or corrupt influence is going to be able to take away from Jesus the things that his father has promised him. Well, Ephesians 4 says, therefore, now walk worthy of that call. What is that call? Being an exalted people. Being a people who live alive from the dead. Meaning, breaking the hold of the influence of powers and principalities off of what is the sway of the wicked one that has taken the whole world under a discipleship agenda. Paul, speaking to believers in Romans 12, says, do not conform to the pattern of the world. That's to believers. We often read that in some evangelistic way. No, he's trying to evangelize Christians from becoming worldly. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. 1 John 5 would call it the sway of the wicked one. In Ephesians 2, he would call it the current or the influence of the powers of the air. That's the responsibility, to live as the people of God, exalted, meaning alive from the dead, no longer bound to the influence of powers, leading a lifestyle, being discipled by the appetite of the world, and continually giving ourselves in a self-indulgent way to a way of life that is going to imprison us to the influence of rulers and principalities. That's the call. Well, that sounds like a lot to try to deal with. Well, God has done his part. God has done his part, which is Ephesians 2, but God in richness of mercy and kindness made you alive from the dead. God has done his part to have the people that he promised his son. And Ephesians 3.10 says that there is a wisdom that God is revealing through the life of the church as a family of new creatures, that is giving testimony to the rest of the world and bringing instructions to powers and principalities. Well, Ephesians 4 calls for a company of gifted ones that are going to serve God's purpose in order to see this family come to maturity. Right? We want John 17 unity. We want Ephesians 4 maturity. Again, God is going to do his part. Well, in Ephesians 4.17, we have a therefore. 
And this, therefore, is now an interjection of what happens whenever you put all of these new creatures together and call them to a way of life together centered on the gospel. And he begins with a bunch of practical stuff. Because when you put people together, now to be family, who prior to their invitation to repentance and inclusion of the gospel would not have preferred one another, when you put these people together, there is going to be friction as they try to consistently live out the power of that gospel. And so he starts with a bunch of practical stuff through the rest of Ephesians 4 and into 5. 5 is husbands and wives, fathers and kids. It's a mystery, Paul says. And then you come into Ephesians 6. And don't think that there's not going to be warfare for this. But we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. But there's the influence of powers that are hell-bent on wanting to bring division and destruction to the things that God desires. The idea is God is building this family. They're the people of God. That's what he said in Exodus 19. I want you to be my people, a kingdom of priests. Well, that's what Peter echoes. Once you were not a people in 1 Peter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And you're not just any people, and you're not just the people that you want to be. But now you're the people of God. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Well, whenever you put these people together, God is building a way of life for them that is going to be the most conducive environment for him to dwell among them. And you have to ask yourself, after the announcement of the gospel, as you continue tracking through Acts 2, it says, and now these ones, in Acts 2.42, they daily devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. It says, an awe and wonder gripped a whole community of folks. It says, and they were commonly or consistently all together, sharing life together. So much so that they were selling their possessions and they were at all times helping one another so that no one among them actually had any need. They were going from house to house, sharing meals with simplicity and sincerity. And there was an authenticity that marked them, so much so that God was in their midst and was adding to their number daily people that were getting saved. Well, I've, I've asked myself, where did they get the instructions for the way of life that they were to create with one another? Where did they get this blueprint? Where did this idea of the wineskin, the environment, the habitat that was going to be the most conducive to giving God what he wanted? How did they know the way that they were to set their lives up? How did they know what was his teachings or his commandments that they were to obey as a way of life together for God to actually dwell among them the way that he wanted to? Well, I believe that we find it in Acts 1 where Jesus was with them for 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. You have to know that God among them was revealing God's desires to them. And in Acts 2, as they gave themselves in repentance 
to the announcement of the gospel, the idea was a radical rearranging of their way of life as they knew it up until that point. I'm not just trying to add God to my way of life. The gospel has called me to repentance. The gospel has called me to a consideration of in any space or place where my life needs to be altered in order for me to now orient my way of life to align with God in a way that is going to best give him the environment, the way of life together, the habitat for him to dwell among us. This is now my consideration. What must I do? And I think an amazing thing to think about as we embark on a new year together would be in what way is the leadership of the Spirit trying to bring me to a place of repentance where I would be willing to alter my way of life in any way that the Lord would say in order to more fully align with Him Yes, but also with the way of life that is going to be most conducive for him to dwell amongst the people that he desires. Amazing consideration as we start the year. I get it. Everybody's got financial goals. We've got organizational goals. We've got all types of goals. But rarely, rarely is a consideration of ours. What can I give myself to over the course of the year? that is actually going to create a more conducive wineskin for God to transform me so that at the end of the year, I'll be more conformed to the image of his son. In what way at the end of the year am I going to see more of Jesus in the reflection in me? In what way can I set my life up to give God all of the components, every space, every place, every conversation. God, you can say whatever you want to say. You can invite me away from things that aren't even wrong. They're not even wrong. They don't have to be wrong in order for it to be right or for in order to God to call us to something that is more right. You don't have to think grotesquely sinful, black and white, error-filled and wrong. It can be wrong because it's occupying unnecessary space in our attention, in our affection, in our preoccupation, and it's resisting us from giving ourselves to other ingredients that God has already determined are going to be the components that are going to best allow us the space for his grace to transform us to look more like Jesus. Um, Because at the end of the age, um, we are not just going to bring Jesus something that we have done. But we are going to bring him what we've become. At the end of Colossians 1, Paul says, we preach him in verse 28. We preach him teaching and admonishing men with all wisdom, with an urgency that cannot be broken. And he says, I recognize that there's actually great power that's working on the inside of me that I've partnered with, right? That would be his charge to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. He would say it this way, don't receive the grace of God in vain. But Paul says that I realize that there's been an issuing of grace to me 
and I've partnered with it. I've given my life to it, and I am striving with all of my might to preach and teach and admonish men so that at the end of the age, we can present to him a people that are whole and mature. At the end of the age, God will be looking for a people that look like his son. Now, the scriptures testify that there will be some of us that barely make it in. What I mean by that is we'll spend all of our life doing our own thing, but yet we will carry an authentic love for him in our hearts. But our pursuit of the world, our pursuit of worldly ideals and goals, our infatuation with ourself, all of these things that were never either confronted or we were actually in the consideration of in a constant exposure to the scriptures. It says that all of our works at that moment when our life is considered before the Lord will be burned up. Wood, stay in hub, wood, wood, hay, and stubble. But we'll get in. You'll be there. You're going to make it into eternity and into the ages to come. But the consideration of reward, you have to understand, God is particular and stewardship is very important to him. What would it be necessary for the purpose of self-control or exercise if I told you that in three months we were all going to have a six-pack? Why would it even matter? Why would any of those things matter to us at all? It would be a free-for-all because the idea would be we're all going to be rewarded the same way. But God is not our moment in history where everyone gets a participation trophy. There are no losers. We're all winners. No one comes in second. By golly, everybody comes in first place. This is not the idea that the scriptures communicate. The idea is there are going to be some of us that shrink back when we see him. That's what 1 John 2 says. He says at the end of the age, when he appears, there will be some that will shrink back in shame. Why? Because there will be no more time for us to actually align with him the way that he has pursued us all of our lives. There will be no more time for us to wrestle and resist. You've spent your whole life doing your own thing, demanding your own way, trying to add God to your way of life. And when he appears at the end of the age, looking for a people through consistent yielding, to his love and his leadership. Because this is the idea. You have to recognize that it is the way of life together that is the wineskin that is actually producing for Jesus what the Father promised him. And until you make that connection, you will never actually see the severity of the call to a way of life in all of its components and not just individual events on Sunday where you recognize that without all of these other ingredients, I am actually resisting in some way a measure of my own transformation. Because it is the life together and the crucible of life together. Well, what do you mean by life together? What I mean is this. Acts 2 gives us six ingredients. It's the apostles' teaching, which is a particular gospel-centered teaching that brings us to the conclusions of what God wants and how we can more fully align our lives with that. 
and then fellowship. Because the idea is these exiles that realize they're misfits and are journeying through this life like that Hebrews 11 company that are a part of this adventure. Together, this is where we now find fellowship. We're exiles, we're misfits, and we find our anchoring and our place of belonging in God's house with God's people. Now, I don't say God's house, meaning some physical property address, but I mean Ephesians 2, our lives knit together, where God is uniquely establishing a place of abiding in the midst of us. Where God is uniquely present in the midst of us as he is knitting our lives together as family and as our jealousy is a way of life together. And that's the teaching and fellowship. It's house-to-house breaking bread, which means the opening up of our homes and hearts to one another. And the prayers. Time together in prayer as God's people. But then as you continue you find that there's daily in the temple and then together house to house. Well, we can't forget that Paul said in Acts 20, 20, remember how I lived when I was among you, preaching publicly and teaching house to house. Or Colossians 4.15, where Paul is greeting them and he says, greet the brethren in Laodicea. Oh, and make sure you greet Nympha and the church that meets in her house. So the idea is corporate meetings and house gatherings. The idea is our hearts and homes are going to be open to one another because we are now exiles and we belong together. The idea is going to be we're going to share our lives, meals, and possessions with one another. And awe and wonder is going to grip our whole community because God is going to be in the midst of us. Why? Because that prescription is the blueprint or the strategy to build the habitat where God can dwell among us the way that he wants to. But what we often settle for is visitations on Sunday. Where God comes and visits us for an hour or two hours or three hours, and they're glorious. I've had my life absolutely whacked on Sundays from time to time. I mean, I could point out to you spots in the carpet in a variety of places all over the country or world where God has met me, and I mean blasted, glorious. But when I peeled my face off the carpet, I had to go home and do life. The goal is not to live in meetings forever. Meetings are wonderful, and they serve a particular purpose. But the climax of Christianity is not getting to meetings on a nightly basis or conference hopping, right? Interesting to me, Jesus did not say a single thing about meetings. He didn't say, bro, I'm telling you, if you can just get the right worship atmosphere, whoo, son. Or boy, let me tell you, if you can find the most influential prophet in the region and hunt him down and attend his meeting and get in his altar call, boy, let me tell you. He said none of these things. In fact, he didn't talk about meetings at all. What he did talk about was the power of God being applied in daily life to the people that God desired to have for himself. And God's desire to so transform them and align them to a way of life that would give God the wineskin that he needed in order to be as uniquely present in the midst of them as he longed to be. 
a way of life together, which involves corporate meetings, house meetings, doing life together, actually opening up our hearts and homes, the jealousy to be in prayer together in a variety of ways, being generous to one another without prejudice or preference. Acts 4.32, and no man laid claim to his own possessions as if they were his own. Well, what you find as you journey through the book of Acts is that God is actually in the midst of this family of new creatures and he is wrecking everything. He is absolutely shaking their city, gospel mission throughout the whole region. God is exploding on the scene in an immediate way by aligning these creatures to him and then sending them as laborers to bring the announcement of the gospel while we live in the tension before his son comes again. This is what you find throughout the whole book of Acts as you journey. You find the results of a people that align themselves with God and one another to a way of life that God prescribes. Then you get all of the consequences of a people who actually give themselves over to that consideration. And it is epic. And then the last consideration for anyone who thinks I might have forgotten, we'll close with this, is Revelation 21. Where once again, we have the fourth installment, if you would, or episode, where God has come down. And John is toward what is the latter part of this glorious throne room visitation. And in Revelation 21, he says that the new creation or the reconciliation of all things has happened. And he hears a voice from the throne in verse 3 saying these words, God has actually done it. He has set up his tabernacle among men and he is dwelling among them in the way that he has always desired to. And what's important is that in verses four and five, we begin to get once again, context or environment or habitat. And as you look at those verses for yourself, it says, and I heard a voice from the throne saying that God has set up his tabernacle among men. He's among them. He's present once again, the way that he wants to. And it says that he's going to wipe every tear-filled eye dry because all of the tension that we live in right now, knowing God's longing and how because we have the down payment of the spirit 2 Corinthians 5 and also Romans 8, that spirit on the inside of us is longing also. And we bear witness that there's a groan that's filled creation and that's also filled our lives where we know that things are not as right as God longs for them to be. That brokenness because of the influence and the consequences of sin has saturated the world system and that people are prone for their hearts to wander and to give way to an influence that wants to corrupt us and derail us from alignment with God. But God is going to see to it and he's going to wipe every teary eye dry. And the next issue of context is he's going to abolish death forever. Hence we have the John 11 weeping. Don't worry little ones, there's a day coming when death will be no more. For I am the resurrection 
am the life. And he who believes in me will live and live forever. He is going to abolish death where the consideration of corruption and destruction, even in an eternal way, will no longer hover over the human experience. And the sting of death will be removed forever. And he's going to right every wrong, meaning every influence that has ever tried to compromise us and derail us from alignment with God will be given the eviction notice forever and ever and ever. And we will live in the ages to come without the consideration of powers, rulers, principalities, a wicked agenda, no more influence or bend towards sin. And God will be glorified because the environment or the habitat will be the most conducive to him sharing himself with us forever and ever and ever. Because again, environment is important. Habitat for habitation is important. And as we start this new year together, man, I really feel the charge of the Lord. And I'm saying that more in a tender way through invitation. Where, like Peter suggested to them in Acts 2, when he preached and their hearts were pierced, they said in Acts 2.37, what must I do? Man, if what you're saying is reality, it's not just true, meaning the thing shared for your own consideration or critique. If it's reality, then it places a demand on us. If we want God to have the things that he wants, not not in an overall way, in a general way, God is gonna get what he wants. The invitation is, will he get it from you? God is going to get what he wants. Your will is not greater than God's. You cannot impose your will from detouring him from getting what he wants. You may detour him from getting it from you, but you will not detour him from getting it overall. So God is going to get what he wants. And this is what Peter preached. The king is coming again. And everything that has resisted his love and leadership is going to face the consequences of judgment at the end of the age because the king is going to reconcile all things into the lordship and the love of his son and he is recreating all things in Christ are you ready for that because he's coming again is your life ready for that and they say what must I do I think an amazing consideration for us as we begin a new year together would be that question before the Lord over our own hearts and lives. Lord, what must I do this year to make the necessary alterations? If you would give me grace to reorient anything about my life where your love and leadership is going to bring awareness that things might not be as fully aligned as you desire to a way of life with the people of God as family journeying on a way of life together. What must I do? Do I need to offload extracurricular activities in order to make more room for people being a part of my life? 
time in prayer with folks that are a part of this journey together, the sharing of meals together, because some of us see these things as inconsequential to the overall objective or desire. Those things don't actually matter, which is why when I have the opportunity to work overtime and to get double time pay or meet with somebody for a meal, I've determined that the greater benefit is the money which is why I don't actually make the room necessary for the things that God has said are the most advantageous to my transformation. Well, I don't have time for prayer meetings. Y'all can do that. Just, I'm gonna come on Sunday. I need somebody to just give me like a word that I can apply over the course of the week. I need the worship team to be there. I need them to ramp it up and create an atmosphere where I can come and kind of worship freely. And oh yeah, you gotta have something for my kids because don't let them get in the way. I need a space and time where I can focus on the Lord. In what way may God be calling us to considerations where our life is set up in a better way? where our life is set up in a way that is more aligned to the way of life that gives him the habitat that he needs to actually develop these creatures into a transformed image or the version of his son that he desires. In what way, Lord, are you inviting me into a deeper way of life together that is going to set me up to experience the journey and the crucible of all of the relational and circumstantial elements that are going to, like a hammer and chisel, give me the opportunity to come under your yoke, to come under your teaching, to live my life together in a way consistently that's going to give you what you want. What must I do? What must I do? Lord, what are you inviting me to that you're going to give me grace for? Right? This is how we're going to close our time together. I'm going to ask everybody to just kind of stand up with me. We're going to close out together in prayer. Man, I just sense the jealousy of the Lord. Man, I know that the Lord is authentically doing something in your midst. And this is an invitation to go further and to go deeper into the things that you already say you are committed to and jealous for. So just kind of before the Lord, I'm gonna pray something for us and over us more so in, in kind of a corporate way. And then I'm gonna invite us to maybe um, pray for one another in a particular way. Um, but let's just take a moment. Uh, I'm gonna ask Dexter if you can just kind of play for, just keep it going, bro. Um, just in the consideration of our own lives before the Lord. Let's just take the next moment or two. I, I get it. It's been a lot. I'm not suggesting that it hasn't been. I knew that coming in, that it was going to be a lot. And it's not just information. But let's just consider our own lives before the Lord for the next moment or two. just say, Lord, you can search my life. If you're even open to that. Right? If you're, I mean, don't pray it if you're not open to it. Right? Like, I mean, I'm not asking you to pretend. But if you're open to that, like, Lord, search my life. What is it about my way of life 
where you're asking to repent, meaning the consideration of my own wisdom in the way that I've set my life up. Where is my own wisdom creating a resistance to my life being more fully aligned with me? Lord, I want to know, and I'm asking you to speak to me. Speak to my heart in a real way, in a personal way. God, you know how to speak to me. You know how to get my attention. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is off the table. Lord, say whatever you want to say. I'm open. Thank you for your transforming love. Where, Lord, you have broken into my life. You have radically changed my situation. I am alive from the dead. I'm no longer a prisoner to the powers of the air. But I am a part of this exalted company, this church, this bride that Jesus has been promised. And you are transforming my life to make me like him. Lord, I'm grateful for that. I'm not looking towards a doom-filled day of destruction where decay is going to come upon me and for eternity I will be separated from you. But Lord, you've done it. It was your mercy extended to my life that has absolutely revolutionized my situation. And Lord, here I am, alive from the dead and a part of your glorious church. And this heavenly colony, this people that you have a longing to dwell in the midst of. Lord, that's my life. Knit together with these other misfits and exiles that recognize we don't belong here. We don't have an appetite like the rest of these guys do anymore. We are different. And Lord, there's a difference in us. And so I'm asking you to speak to me this afternoon. What must I do? What must I do? Lord, in what way are you asking me to alter the course of the trajectory? In what way are you bringing me into the consideration of making space for things that maybe prior to I would have deemed to be unnecessary or irrelevant to the overall success of my life? What are you saying to me? Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to speak to your people. Thank you for this church together as family. Thank you for these new creatures. Thank you for what you're doing in South Georgia. I pray, establish a way of life among them that would create a wineskin or a habitat for God to dwell among them the way that he desires where they would be a provocative to the region, where they would be a provoking catalyst, where God in the midst of them everywhere you find them, and not just for a particular time window on Sundays, anywhere that I find them, anywhere that they are together, their way of life has somehow created a housing and God is with them and he is uniquely present in the midst of them. Lord, would you do this? Would you do this? Would you 
do this, Lord. Walk in the cool of the day among them the way that you desire. So this is what we'll do. I'm going to ask everybody uh, in just a moment as you feel led from the Lord or um, just as things awkwardly seem to unfold as they do from time to time, uh, we're all going to find a prayer partner and we're all going to link arms with someone and we're just going to take a couple of moments and maybe if you feel led to, share your heart with that person and just, man, I've been asking the Lord to give me grace in this area or this is what I feel like the Lord is saying to me right now and if we don't have any of those conclusions, then maybe we just pray courage on one another and we just pray hope on one another and we just pray that God would give great grace to the person that we're praying for to come under his yoke and leadership in a greater way over the course of this year. But let, let's do that. We're gonna close out that way. Let's everybody just kind of find somebody. Maybe if it's convenient, somebody that's just kind of near you, where you are, great, amazing. Uh, but if you have to kind of work a little bit and maybe walk, um, let's find somebody. And let's all buddy up together in the place of prayer. And man, let's really pray grace and hope and courage on one another. Lord, we want you to have your way. So here we are. We want you to have your way, Lord. So here we are. Here we are, here we are, here we are. Here we are, here we are, here we are. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message. If you've been impacted today and would like to stay connected with what the Lord is doing through the Burn Culture family, you can visit our website at burnculture.org.